Okay, over the last couple of weeks, we've been um, exploring a series called God Questions, and we've been looking at initially the question, is God real? Today, we're going to take that a little step further, and we're going to see if what we experience in reality matches what the Bible says about God as creator. We want to see if this testimony we just heard from the scripture about how there is um, how the heavens declare the glory of God, if that matches reality. And in the future, as we move down this, we're going to look at some of the other really, really hard questions, like why does God allow suffering? We're going to explore, is God just? Is God loving? We're going to attempt um, to answer the question uh, uh, that it can be very confusing to us. What is the Trinity? How did that come about? How does that work? and a host of other questions that Ian and I will be addressing in the upcoming weeks. Last week, as we explored uh, some verses out of Romans chapter one, we talked about that we have have two particular options, two different worldviews, either uh, either in the beginning matter, as I used my handy piece of matter I found out by the bus stop, Um, that just happened to be laying there. Um, Either in the beginning matter and everything that we experience in in this reality that we call life came from matter. Over time, by chance, not only all the things that are formed, not only all the objects, but all of life, all experience, things like love and justice and consciousness and intelligence, Did it all come from matter? Well, even if it did, we still need to find out where the matter came from because we need an explanation for that. So that's one option. That's the atheist viewpoint that points us to a worldview in which everything is controlled by the laws of nature, everything is a product of chance, and in which we avoid any accountability to God. Or we have the possibility of in the beginning God. That God created all these things. And last week we looked at um, what it says in Romans chapter 1 verse 20 about his divine attributes and explored that perhaps the greatest argument for God beyond the tangible things that we see, the design that we see in nature, perhaps the greatest argument is love. Because it's really hard for me to possibly get my mind around love coming out of this. I don't know about you, but for me, that is a huge leap. And I've discovered that it would require far more faith, at least for me, to believe in the beginning matter than to believe in the beginning God. Well, today we're going to explore another aspect of that initial verse where it says not only does, not only is his divine attributes seen, but also his eternal power. Because what we want to explore today is the issue of first cause. What caused the universe? What brought it into being? As we, as scientists more and more discover, they look out and they now have a great confidence that the universe had a beginning. That was not the case. That was not the common belief in the scientific world 40, 50 years ago. They believed that either an oscillating universe or that the universe itself was eternal. Um, But everything 
in the reality of our world points to the fact that it had a beginning. If it had a beginning, what brought about something rather than nothing? What began to set all this in motion? So, is God, God, is he the creator? Is he, does he match reality? Because we need to understand that if there is no God and everything came about by chance, then all the design in the universe came about by a random accident in direct opposition to the second law of thermodynamics that we looked at last week. Everything in the world came from nothing. Matter, energy, and forces all just happened. Um, In other words, nothing plus time equals all life and all the universe and everything that we experience as humans. Now, there are four components that if, if, if um, naturalistic evolution and atheism is true, there are four components that all had to not only happen by chance, but had to be coordinated together to work in harmony by chance. And those four components are matter, energy, information, and language. Matter had to spontaneously appear, or as the Big Bang explains, it started off incredibly small and expanded. Because you can't explain where it came from, so rather than being able to explain where it came from, we're just going to make it smaller and smaller. It still doesn't answer the question of where it came from, um, but that's the explanation they come up with. Secondly, energy acted upon that matter. The energy had to have a source. Where did it come from? What caused it to interact with the matter to form the beginning? Thirdly, and this one has no, is perhaps the hardest question for an atheist to answer, is where did all the information that governs everything about the universe and about our own very bodies, where did that come from? Did information come from matter? Because ultimately, that is the belief system of atheism. That the information, the mathematical precision that governs the universe came about by chance. Now, they would say it came about by necessity because it's what it needed to be, but there's no explanation about how it was so precisely done. But not only is there information And we think about the complexity of information. We're going to look at this a little more in a a moment. But just to begin to get your mind around it, do you realize that in one cell of human DNA, there are are four different characters that make up the components uh, of that cell um, in its genome, in DNA. And there are 3.5 billion characters in the code of every single human cell. Now, I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. I have here um, my iPad, and my iPad, which <laughs> isn't following my sermon the way it's supposed to, but my iPad is, has software in it that has been written. It's, it's binary. It consists of ones and zeros, and the ones and zeros have been ordered in such a way to produce a code that most of the time operates in the way that I expect it to. It operates in the way the designer um, who coded it made it to work. But none of us would suppose that this happened by chance. 
we wouldn't suppose that computer language, computer um, um, coding happens by accident. And understand, a computer is only binary. It only has two components, ones and zeros. Everything that we experience on the internet comes out of ones and zeros. But human DNA is four times more complicated than that. It's not ones and zeros. It's four different things put into a very specific order, 3.5 billion characters long. Can that happen by chance? And not only is the information there, but then when we begin to, to wrestle with how did the language develop to understand the information and apply it to, so that it not only works on the individual cell, but in the organism and interacts exactly the way it's supposed to with everything else in the created environment. You see, language has to be a reality as well. It's not, if it's just random, if it's just chance, then how is it understandable? These things, I believe, point directly to a specific cause, and that cause is the Lord. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, as we, we look at those verses, we need to, re to remember something about the Bible that is very important. The Bible does not claim to be a textbook of science. It is not necessarily written to be a book of history, although it contains history. It contains elements of science. What is the Bible? It is a biography. It is pointing not to a process, but to a person. It is revealing the God who created us, not necessarily the mechanisms that um, perhaps he used in creating that, although it does speak to a certain degree about how that happened that he spoke and it became. But its purpose is always to point us to a person. It is a biography and it is incredibly beautiful. But here in these first, four, first three verses of Genesis chapter one, we find a whole lot of components of creation that we need to be able to understand the reality that we experience in our universe. First of all, it says in the beginning, there's the creation of time. Time had a beginning, and it continues to flow from that beginning point. Science would point us to that same conclusion. Secondly, there's a cause. The next thing it says is God created. God who is outside of time began time. There's a condition. It says that the earth was formless and void out of nothing. Not a reorganization, but something brand new. And the word in the Hebrew language, the word create is the word bara, which is only used of God where it, because it refers to something being created that never existed before. Not something being built or formed, but something brand new coming into being. That's what God reveals about himself in his word. And it matches the reality that we see in our world. 
also we see an independent cause. For it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters or over the deep, your translation may read. The Spirit of God is an important phrase in there because it's talking about how God is not a physical being. He is spirit. This means he is not limited by time and space. He is beyond that. And we'll look at that a little bit more. Also, we see included there where it talks about the waters. It talks about the formation of the molecules being created. And speech God speaks, information is formed, instruction is given about how it is to connect together and work. And so all the elements that are necessary for us to see these components of a beginning that explains everything are found in the first few verses of Genesis. Creation of energy is there. He says, let there be light. Energy begins spoken. And when he said, let there be light, that created every form of electromagnetic energy in the universe. When you go home today to warm up your leftovers from yesterday and you you put in the microwave and you, you push all those buttons and you push start and it begins to make that sound and, you know, who knows what happens in there. Um, but something magical happens in there and everything gets hot. That came about when he said, let there be light because it was part of that electromagnetic spectrum, along with X-rays and ultraviolet rays and all kinds of other aspects of energy spoken into existence. So the biblical account points to answers to the ultimate questions. Atheistic evolution simply tries to make the beginning smaller and farther away in order to avoid any kind of accountability to God. But the evidence shows us there must be a first cause. So let's look at what what a first cause would have to, to, to look like. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it talks about God's eternal power, that that is the first cause and that it's also the sustainer of all of creation. So what would be necessary for a first cause? Let's look at a few of these things together. The first one is the first cause must be independent of its effect. In other words, you can't have a part of something be the thing that creates everything that is something. It can't be a component of itself. The tire on your car could never create the rest of an automobile. It's a part. And so it has to be independent. And what we see in God in the way he has revealed himself is he's letting us know that very, very clearly. He's not only the creator, but he's also telling us he is unlike anything else. In fact, his personal name, Yahweh, that he revealed to Moses there at the the burning bush, it means I am that I am, the self-existent one, meaning that I am beyond everything that I have made. I am independent of this universe and of this creation. I am something bigger and greater. And that's what you have to have to have a first cause. It has to be something outside the system. If it were outside the box, the box can't build itself and something inside the box can't make everything in the box and the box. It has to be independent. Logic demands that the cause must be independent of its effect. In essence, it must reside outside and beyond the box. 
Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. We see evidence of a first cause, of a God with eternal power that created the expanses of the universe. The beauty that we see in creation, it pours forth speech. Well, secondly, a first cause must be infinitely powerful. Or as the scripture would use the word, or theology at least would use the word, omnipotent, without restraint to its power. Logic also tells us that the effect cannot be greater than its cause. All right? Does that make sense? The effect cannot be greater than its cause. The first cause has to be unlimited because if it were limited, it would have to be limited by some other thing. It cannot be limited by nothing. So the entity which requires nothing else for its existence must be without limits or infinite all-powerful. The first cause, in order to fit the reality that we see in our universe, has to be all-powerful. It can't be something else. It can't be another creature. It can't be life that comes from an alien race on on a different planet. It does not fit the requirements of first cause. Isaiah 40, verse 26 says, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The scriptures declare this is the God who has created everything. Now, here's the, here's the important thing. As you hear those, those, those huge statements that, that ultimately God knows the name of every star, The scripture also says he knows your name. He calls you by name. In fact, he says in Isaiah as well that your name is inscribed upon his hand. He is not only all-powerful, he is incredibly personal, incredibly loving. Colossians goes on to say this in chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. For Jesus Christ. This is who this is speaking of. And he is before all things. In other words, it's saying Jesus is before the beginning. We need to understand that it's very clear in saying Jesus is fully God. Yes, he became fully man at the incarnation, but he was there before the beginning and all things were created by him and for him. This is the story of Jesus Christ all through the scriptures. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. I love that verse because it answers one of the greatest mysteries in all of of nature. And it's simply this. What holds an atom together? Some of you guys are are, um, much smarter than I am, and you understand um, chemistry and molecular biology far more than I could even begin to think about. But I do know a few things that um, are puzzling to me. For instance, I understand that in... Uh, electromagnetic 
um, forces that, like charges, repel one another, right? When you put a positive and a positive together, what happens? They push themselves apart, right? Is everybody semi-tracking with me? Yeah. <laughs> Hope I didn't say anything wrong there. Okay, so what do you have in, in a molecule, in an atom? doesn't matter what kind you, you take. You have protons in the neutrons that are similarly charged, right? They're all positive. In the middle, in the nucleus of that atom, they are all positive. And yet, they don't push each other apart. And at the same time, separated slightly from them are the electrons that are going around them that are being held together but not pulled all the way into the center. They are suspended outside of the nucleus. How do we describe that? How do we explain how that happens? Well, in science, they've come up with a great thing because they can't really explain what it is and so they just gave it a name. Would you like to know the name of what holds an atom together? Yeah, yes. Somebody in here is smarter than I. You already know what it is. What it is. Does anybody know what it is? Strong force. Okay? That's exactly technically what it's called. Strong force. Let me read a verse I just read to you uh, before. Isaiah 40, verse 26. Because he is strong in power, not one is missing. He holds it together. There's a strong force, and it works in cooperation with, this is another great creative name of science, a weak force. So somehow the weak force and the strong force, they work together in order to hold that atom together in just the right um, state so that it is able to function perfectly. Now, this is incredibly important because what happens when an atom comes apart? Does anybody know? It's a what? Yeah, a lot of energy is expended. Hiroshima, an atomic bomb. If the atoms were not held together, this universe would be annihilated. The scripture says that Jesus himself is the strong force that holds it together. And I am so thankful. We'd be in a really bad state if he didn't. (laughs) Okay. So the first cause has to be powerful. Thirdly, the first cause must be eternal. This means transcending time. Psalm 90, verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever um, you had formed the earth and the world, you are from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. It's telling us that God, the first cause, is outside of time, which is absolutely required because otherwise, if, if, it came, if he came before, uh, excuse me, after the beginning, what caused the beginning, right? He has to be outside of time. And that's why the first verse in Genesis is so important in the beginning. God, the first thing God created was time. He created time, space, matter, energy, information, everything. But it was created because he is outside of those things. He is beyond those things. The creator must be outside of time. Nothing in the universe can go back before the creation event. But the creator himself must. If he started the process, from our perspective, he is without beginning, without end. He is eternal. 
also we see that the first cause must be spiritual. That means transcending space, not limited to height, width, or depth. The first cause by necessity has to be spiritual, transcending space. Logically, the creator or that first cause cannot be limited to the confines of space. He does not simply exist as a, as a point in the axis of height, width, and depth. That's why he can be omnipresent. He can be everywhere because he is not limited to space. He also has to be able to interact within the three dimensions of space, but he is independent of them. By the way, these kind of things are really, really important for you understanding how God sees you. For instance, when you come to Christ, God sees you as completed in Christ. He sees you as being fully transformed, and not as, no longer as a sinner. Your sin is taken care of. It is nailed to the cross when you place your trust in Jesus Christ. He sees you complete in Jesus Christ, even though you and I, in time, are nowhere close. At least I'm not. I mean, I continue to sin and fail, and yet God sees me complete in Christ because he is outside of time. He already sees who I become in him and who you become in him. And that is so important because it means he believes that, this is what it says in the scripture, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He says you are a completed work. Even though you and I are sinners, we have failed, we'll become the Christ, he is gonna transform each and every one of us. And that is possible because he is a God who is spiritual and who transcends space and time. He is eternal. Solomon wrestled with this when he was building the temple and dedicating it. And he says this in his prayer. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house I have built. God is so much bigger than anything we can imagine. And what we see revealed about him in the scriptures matches the reality and the necessity of a first cause. He cannot be limited to the confines of space. That's also why God forbids the making of any idol to represent himself. He is not made of earthly stuff. He cannot be represented by things which are made. He is eternal, spiritual, all-powerful, transcendent. He is God. Also, the first cause must be incredibly wise. There is evidence of design that we see in everything that is made. And, and as I mentioned before, perhaps the greatest speech that goes out to all the world, as we read in Psalm chapter 19, the greatest speech that goes out into all the world is the discovery of DNA. Because written into you and I, into every one of our cells, is incredible information. Designed specifically. Now, that happens inside of us. We also see exactly the same thing in the conditions for which the earth is made that is designed just in the right way to be able to support life. 
And I wrote a way too long sermon here, and so maybe I'll do a blog with all the things that I'm cutting out, all eight, nine pages that I probably won't get to, um, because there's a whole lot there that we'd run out of time. I mentioned to you last week um, some quotes by Dr. Anthony Flew, and he, he was a leading spokesperson for atheism for most of his life until towards the end of his life where he, he, he wrestled specifically with consciousness, where consciousness came from, and with DNA. And this is what he said in an interview in 2004. He said, superintelligence is the only good explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature and DNA. Nothing else makes sense. And even though he had spent his life proclaiming atheism, he came to the point later in his life where saying the explanations just do not fit reality. It is far too complex to have happened by accident. And I mentioned to you that I made up my own word because I do that. My wife will tell you I do this all the time. A computer language is binary. DNA is quaternary, okay? You feel free to use that word. You can take it home with you, all right? It's got four parts. That's what that means, quaternary. And, and it may, it's made up of or abbreviated by these four chemicals that are abbreviated by the letters A, T, G, and C. Now, to give an idea of just how complex that is, I told you that a single strand of DNA inside of a cell contains 3.5 billion letters in a unique combination to you and to me that is different from everyone else, okay? 3.5 billion characters of the A, T, G, and C. To give you an idea of just how complex that is, if you were to read those at three letters a second constantly, just reading out the code that is contained within your DNA in one cell, it would take you over 31 years, 24 hours a day just to read the letters. Can it happen just by chance with that kind of complexity? Or is it a speech that pours forth the glory of a God who designed us and loves us? I believe with everything in me, it points to him. It points to his glory, to his greatness. The scripture has another creation account in John chapter one that's slightly different. It says this, in the beginning was the Word. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Everything was made by him, including DNA. And isn't it interesting that God, in revealing himself, chose the word in the Greek language, which is logos. Now, how else do we use the word logos? We use it in every form of science. Biology, bio, means life, and it's added to the end of its word, logos, the study of, the understanding of, the knowledge of life. Zoology, the zoo, means animals, animals. 
The logi means the study, the understanding, the information of. Do you see what it's saying here? Is the information that explains this universe came from Jesus himself in the beginning, the word, the information, the logos, everything that was made, the imprint of his fingerprints are on everything he created. Not just random accident or chance, but incredible design as explained in the scripture. There's a, we're out of time, but there's a very ancient principle called Ackman's Razor that says the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. And we need to understand the differences between these two worldviews, these two ideas about the beginning or the first cause. For an atheist needs a billion little miracles to bring about the universe and life. Whereas the believer in God needs only one, God himself. The simplest explanation is actually found in the scripture, in the beginning, God. Now in a moment, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper, but um, a big part of the (laughs) message that I wrote focused on how does God want us to respond to his creation? Well, he tells us in Genesis that after he created everything, after it was complete, he rested. Now, he didn't rest because he was tired. He is God. He doesn't lose energy like we do. He doesn't need to sleep or slumber, as the scripture says. He rested because it was complete. And he rested and gave us the the Sabbath, the time to rest, because he wants that to be our response to what he has made. To rest means that you put your trust, you're at peace with one who watches over you. Jesus Christ not only created us, but he saved us and he calls us to put our trust in him, to rest in who he is, not in our own efforts, not in our own abilities. We can't earn a relationship with him. We could never be good enough. Instead, the only thing we can do is rest in what he did and what he did was in order to solve the sin problem that marred you and I and every other person on the face of the earth who's ever lived or ever will live He gave of himself to die on a cross. His body was offered as payment for our sin. His blood was shed as represented in the cup to cover over and provide forgiveness of our sin so that you and I could rest in him. See, this is why he is the Lord of the Sabbath because ultimately our rest is found in Jesus Christ. So today, as we think about the amazement of our creator, of our God, what he has done, we come to a table to receive the bread and the cup that represent Jesus giving of his body, giving of his blood for us, and and we come in trust, in simple rest, in praise and worship, to saying, Lord, thank you. Thank you for making me. Thank you for saving me. That's why it's significant. When you actually study the Passover, you understand that they were resting at table with Jesus 
as he instructs us to do this in remembrance of him, it is a time of rest, of peace, because we are in his hands. So today, what I want to encourage you to do is as you think about the questions that you have about creation, you think about the wonders of this world, the, the amazement of the information that, is, that holds everything together, including our, our bodies, that you put more trust, more rest in this amazing God who made everything and yet loved us so much he was willing to die to win us back. Dear Heavenly Father, how can we thank you for what you have made? How can we thank you for the fact that there is something rather than nothing? That you have given life, you've given creation. Lord, you are the artist that paints the sunset. You are the majestic God that creates the mountains. Lord, you are the one that holds all things together, including the smallest atom and the greatest star. And yet, Lord, you are a God who loves us intimately and personally. Lord Jesus, today we come to your table in remembrance of you. Lord, we ask your blessing upon the cup for it represents your blood that was shed to give us forgiveness of sin and to return us to a relationship with you, to clothe us in your righteousness, to make us complete in you. We ask your blessing upon the bread that represents you, Lord Jesus, as the bread of life. Your body was given for us. You are the one who sustains us. Even as bread sustains a physical body, it is your life that sustains every aspect of who we are. And so, Lord, we come to receive this in thanksgiving, in praise, and resting not in our ability or goodness, but only in your provision. And, Lord, wherever we've been trying to live independently of you, rebelling, disobeying you. Lord, help us to confess that right now because as we come to remember you, Lord, we want to come with all our focus on the greatness of who you are and the immeasurable love that you have demonstrated for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We ask your blessing on this. In Jesus' name, amen.